hello, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm delighted that you've joined us today. Many of our listeners are members of iFormerX and belong to our online community, and we welcome all health professionals to join. It's free, and only iFormerX members can use the interactive features on our website. Plus, as a member, you'll get periodic alerts to new content when it's released. So sign up today. For today's podcast, we have two outstanding guests who will be talking to us about the 2022 Standards of Medical Care for Diabetes, which is published each year in January by the American Diabetes Association. Dr. Jennifer Clements has been a frequent contributor to iFormerX. In fact, she's a member of our editorial board. Jennifer wrote a commentary for us entitled Top 10 Things Every Clinician Should Know about the 2022 Standards of Medical Care for Diabetes, which is a great summary of the notable changes that have been made to the ADA guidelines over the past year or so. Dr. Clements is a clinical pharmacy specialist at Spartanburg Regional Healthcare System in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where she oversees the inpatient diabetes management team, which is responsible for transitioning patients from hospital to home. She's also the chair of the Health Systems Diabetes Advisory Council. So Jennifer lives and breathes diabetes care every day, and the ADA practice guidelines have a significant impact on her work. Our second guest today is Dr. Joshua Newmiller from Washington State University, where he is the Alan I. White Distinguished Professor of Pharmacotherapy. As some of our listeners may know, Josh served on and chaired the ADA's Professional Practice Committee, which is the group that revises the standards of medical care each year. So Josh can provide us with an insider's perspective of the revision process and the evidence that's considered. Dr. Newmiller also provided peer review comments for the iFormerX commentary. So, Jennifer, it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast today. And Josh, thanks for being our special guest for this episode. Welcome. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be back. Yeah, thanks so much for the invitation, Stuart. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you, Josh, to tell us a little bit about the process for developing the standards of medical care and diabetes. I understand that the ADA appoints an interprofessional group to examine the evidence and make revisions to the standards on an ongoing basis. If you can tell us a bit about the work of the Professional Practice Committee, what evidence it considers, and and how that evidence is evaluated, as well as how recommendations are rated. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. I'd certainly be happy to. So the Professional Practice Committee, as you said, is a multidisciplinary and multi-specialty group of about 15 members or so. That fluctuates a little bit from year to year. And these folks work really closely with the staff at the ADA to update the print version of the standards of care uh, each and every year. And as you mentioned, the standards of care is now a living document. So not only is the ADA standards of care updated annually, uh, but they'll actually update the content with any major major updates that occur over the course of the year that can have an important impact on the recommendations themselves. And anyone familiar with the standards knows that the document is quite extensive and covers topics ranging from diabetes prevention and diagnosis to management of diabetes complications, 
and truly everything in between, including diabetes management across the lifespan. And while serving on the committee, I learned that the first standards of care document was published in 1989 and was only four pages in length, if you can imagine. And fast forward to the 2022 standards of care that we're talking about today, the document's now over 260 pages in length. So uh, you, you can imagine it takes quite a lot of effort and organization to keep the document current and up to date uh, as a good resource for, for clinicians out in practice. I think this has uh, been a, especially true in recent years with everything we have learned from cardiovascular and other outcome studies that have dramatically shifted our thinking on how to use glucose lowering agents, as well as rapid advancements in diabetes technologies that I think we'll talk a little bit about today. So the people who are chosen to serve on the professional practice committee in many ways mirrors the diversity of topics covered within the standards. The committee largely consists of physicians from a range of specialties, including endocrinology, cardiology, and nephrology, in addition to practitioners with expertise in the management of children and adolescents, as well as older adults, uh, as, as some examples, and providers with expertise in diabetes prevention, weight management, and inpatient management are also represented on that committee. Uh, the ADA is really great about being inclusive of all members of the diabetes care team. Uh, they always include a pharmacist, they always include a dietitian, and they're very uh, importantly include several diabetes care and education specialists, as well as behavioral specialists uh, on the committee as well. As many of the listeners may know, the standards of care is published in the January issue of Diabetes Care each year. And uh, as the standards, as soon as those standards are published, the committee quickly convenes in February or March, right after it's hot off the presses to begin working on updates for the next year. And so at the beginning of the year, the committee reviews any comments that have been received on the most recent standards of care. On the standards of care website, there is a place there where people can submit comments about the standards. The committee reviews those and often makes changes uh, related to those comments. And then the committee is divided into smaller work groups based on expertise and interest to work on updating the various sections. Those small work groups are tasked with performing extensive literature searches to identify new evidence that may impact relevant recommendations or algorithms within each section and begin to draft revisions to reflect uh, current best evidence. And through that process, they also develop evidence tables that they can report out to the larger committee. So the full committee then meets several times over the course of the year to discuss all changes that are suggested by the smaller work groups to ensure agreement among all committee members uh, with a great deal of discussion taking place behind the scenes to finalize wording of the recommendations uh, down to you know, arguing over ands or ors uh, because they, they make a difference in these recommendations and to discuss any recommended changes to evidence levels assigned uh, to revised or new proposed recommendations. So I'd say it's really quite an impressive and involved process uh, with the end goal of providing members of the diabetes care team with the most up-to-date evidence-based recommendations as possible. So, Jennifer, let's talk about the commentary you wrote, um, which highlighted some of the most important updates to the ADA guidelines. I noticed there were some new recommendations regarding screening, but there were also changes in the recommendations for the pharmacological approach to hyperglycemia. What are some of the key takeaways that you think every clinician should know? 
Stuart, you were right. There have been several changes with screening among asymptomatic adults and women who wish to get pregnant. So first, I wanted to mention that the risk test provided by the American Diabetes Association has been simplified to seven questions. And we know that this tool is valuable in clinical practice for ambulatory care and community practitioners. Another thing we know is that age is a major risk factor for diabetes. Therefore, it's now going to be more important to screen early among asymptomatic adults no later than the age of 35 years of age. What remained unchanged from the previous standards was screening among adults who are overweight or have obesity based on their BMI, related to their ethnicity, and one or more risk factors for diabetes. To me, the screening change from 45 to 35 years of age along with the new risk assessment tool can be implemented and utilized in clinical practice immediately. Due to the rising prevalence of obesity and type 2 diabetes, more women of reproductive age have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in pregnancy. In women who are planning to get pregnant, the standards now recommend screening for diabetes early among those with risk factors and before 15 weeks of gestation. They also suggest screening among all women for undiagnosed diabetes prior to pregnancy and at the first prenatal visit. That's for all women. In terms of assessment for children, when you look in the standards, you'll see that it's very comprehensive and extensive in terms of the amount of information that should be collected on this patient population as related to diabetes. To answer the last part of your question, I wanted to mention a few highlights from Section 9 when it comes to pharmacotherapy for glycemic control. First, for people with type 1 diabetes, there's a great table that outlines the choices of insulin regimens in this patient population. It evaluates injected insulin regimens and continuous insulin infusion regimens based on flexibility, the risk of hypoglycemia, and cost. For people with type 2 diabetes, what's changed is that it states in terms of the standards that first-line options will depend on the presence of comorbid conditions, patient-centered treatment factors, and management needs which does include access to those medications. Now, the algorithm that we all utilize in practice looks much cleaner, especially when referring to the next add-on option for each compelling indication. But one major notable update includes the expansion of chronic kidney disease, particularly in the presence or absence of albuminuria. When you look at the recommendations, there are several options in terms of utilizing an SGLT2 inhibitor that has primary evidence of reduction or an SGLT2 inhibitor that can reduce progression of CKD from the original cardiovascular outcome trials or a GLP-1 receptor agonist with proven cardiovascular benefit, especially if an SGLT2 inhibitor cannot be used due to intolerance or a contraindication. 
Yeah. Thanks, Jennifer. Great, great overview of some of the key changes to the, to the guidelines over the last year. And I would just add with regard to use of glucose lowering therapies, it's, it's really amazing how over the last several years, we we've shifted from this glucose centric uh, approach to really looking at people's comorbidities being chronic kidney disease, as you mentioned, certainly atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and also heart failure. So really thinking about these medications as not only glucose lowering, but also cardiovascular and kidney protective agents is, is really important over the last several years. There's also been some updated recommendations with regard to treating and preventing chronic kidney disease in patients with diabetes. And despite the availability of many treatment options, CKD remains a common comorbidity and diabetes remains the leading cause of end-stage kidney disease. Uh, tell us a little bit about the ADA recommendations and Josh, I'm, I'm hoping you can give us some practical tips and how we might do a better job preventing and treating CKD in patients with diabetes. I think it's awesome that the 2022 standards now has a separate section for chronic kidney disease and risk management, as there has been a lot of evidence in this area. So in terms of chronic kidney disease, for those that have type 2 diabetes and diabetic kidney disease, a SGLT2 inhibitor is recommended uh, for those that have a GFR that is equal to or above 25 and a urinary albumin to creatinine ratio equal to or above 300, the same class is recommended for people with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease with the same cutoff for GFR and the urinary albumin to creatinine ratio. To my knowledge, the American Diabetes Association is the first organization to provide recommendations on a new medication, finerenone, and that evidence is based on the Fidelio and Figaro trials. As a level A recommendation, finerenone can be considered for people with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease who are unable to take a SGLT2 inhibitor, possibly due to intolerance or contraindication. Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. I really couldn't agree more with your comments. It's, it's really great to see a dedicated section within the standards discussing the management of chronic kidney disease. Before this year, it was really embedded with uh, neuropathy and retinopathy, uh, but especially when considering the dramatic benefits we're seeing with SGLT2 inhibitors and the non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist finerenone, I think it's important that this have its own section within the standards as the ADA did. Uh, just a few weeks ago, it was announced that the kidney outcome trial EMPA-Kidney with empagliflozin was also stopped early due to overwhelming benefit as we previously saw with canagliflozin and dapagliflozin uh, in their kidney outcome trials. I did want to note, Stuart, Jennifer and I have both been involved in several workshops hosted by organizations like the ADA, National Kidney Foundation, and the American Society of Nephrology discussing the importance of optimizing use of these therapies to prevent people with chronic kidney disease and diabetes from progressing to end-stage kidney disease and experiencing cardiovascular events, which occur at very high rate in people with chronic kidney disease. And in all of these workshops I have attended, a major point of emphasis has been that clinical pharmacists represent a very critical group of clinicians who can help close this gap. The fact is chronic kidney disease and diabetes is widely under-recognized, under-diagnosed, and under-treated. 
In one of our recently published analyses from the Center for Kidney Disease Research, Education, and Hope, or the Cure CKD registry that I'm fortunate to work on, we reported that only about 20% of CKD patients in that registry were receiving an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, with chronic kidney disease patients in that registry actually more likely to be taking a potentially nephrotoxic medication like an NSAID or a proton pump inhibitor. So while it's really exciting that we have these new agents that can move the needle and improve kidney outcomes, uh, evidence shows that many patients aren't even receiving current standard of care, uh, RAS inhibition who have chronic kidney disease. And to remind the listeners, the trials demonstrating benefit with SGLT2 inhibitors and finerenone, that benefit was observed on top of optimized ACE inhibitor or ARB therapy. So coming back to your question, Stuart, I think pharmacists can make a huge impact on chronic kidney disease and diabetes by really encouraging appropriate screening, including EGFR and albuminuria screening, and recommending or prescribing, depending on your practice, ACE inhibitors and ARBs when indicated, followed by the addition of these other therapies um, as clinically appropriate. One recommendation I wanted to quickly mention that was added to the standards this year that I believe pharmacists can reference when advocating for the addition of these agents is the recommendation that in patients with severely increased albuminuria, that is a UACR of 300 milligrams per gram or greater, the ADA recommends targeting an albuminuria reduction of 30% or more to slow CKD progression. And so this provides, I believe, a nice objective goal that we can cite when recommending the addition of SGLT2 inhibitors and, and other therapies. And one last thing I'll add, Stuart, is that for a long time, we educated other members of the diabetes care team that SGLT2 inhibitors don't work with low kidney function, which of course is true when we're using them strictly for glucose control, but now we know their benefits in chronic kidney disease are not glucose dependent, and they can be used really until dialysis for kidney protection. So I think pharmacists can make a huge impact again on optimizing these therapies through education of patients, as well as other members of the care team on their benefits um, on kidney and cardiovascular outcomes. So as we all know, obesity is a major contributing factor to the development of type 2 diabetes, and the ADA has several recommendations about lifestyle and pharmacotherapy for weight management. What are some of the key recommendations this year? First, I wanted to mention lifestyle modifications remain a key component for the management of type 2 diabetes, and it is a foundational piece to prevent diabetes-related complications, as highlighted in Section 10 on cardiovascular risk reduction and management. But specifically for weight management, lifestyle modifications, including dietary changes to reduce caloric intake and promotion of physical activity with behavioral modifications are important to achieve and maintain that weight loss goal of 5% or more. What the standards recommend is that, you know, when you look at lifestyle modifications with behavioral modifications, this should be done at a high frequency with educational sessions of 16 or more over a six-month period of time. The 2022 standards provide similar statements as prior standards in terms of weight loss medications and the need to do a risk versus benefit analysis. However, what I like best is the comprehensive table of all the available agents for weight management, 
indicating when you look at the details that semaglutide 2.4 milligrams is the most effective option given as a once weekly medication. This particular medication can lead to a 9.6% weight loss on average from baseline. And when you think of that number, it's actually almost double the suggested target of 5%. However, there have been some availability problems with semaglutide as that brand name product for weight management. And so hopefully in this quarter, um, in 2022, some of that availability problems will start to decrease but we know cost is an issue when it comes to most weight loss medications. But I wanted to highlight that when you really read this section, the committee added the addition of oral hydrogel in the standards under medical devices for weight loss. This particular product is approved for long-term use of weight loss for those with a BMI above 25 as it expands to fill a portion of the stomach volume. So this mechanism will definitely help individuals decrease food intake when they take the medication with meals. It has an okay to decent weight loss compared to placebo, but where it may fit in or have a little niche is that it would be a lower cost compared to other prescription weight loss medications. So before we conclude today, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the latest technologies that can help patients manage diabetes more effectively, from continuous glucose monitors to insulin pumps and smart pens. There are lots of new gadgets out there. So I'm wondering what the ADA recommendations are, and when do you think these technologies are most helpful? I think this is a great question, and I'll be honest that as soon as I know the recommendations and feel comfortable with new technology, it seems out of date in a week or a month as something new comes out. So I definitely find it hard to keep up with the latest and greatest in terms of technology, but we know it's very valuable for people with diabetes. In terms of technology, it's important to individualize the type and selection of the device per the patient. Uh, so that person with diabetes, we need to assess their needs, desires, skill level, and the availability of the product. But based on evidence from randomized control trials, observational studies, and real-world evidence, there's many benefits to continuous glucose monitors. Real-time and intermittently scanned continuous glucose monitoring should be offered in adults with diabetes on multiple daily injections or insulin pumps and can be used for those on basal insulin who are capable of using these devices safely. Now, the level of evidence is higher with real-time monitoring than intermittently scanned. For insulin pumps, automated insulin delivery systems should be offered to the youth and adult populations with type 1 diabetes. And this was a big highlight for me as the software has gotten sophisticated with this type of delivery system as it can increase and decrease insulin delivery based on glucose levels. In addition, this particular system can improve A1C and increase the time and range, which is the new metric for glucose control. For those with type 2 diabetes, insulin pumps can be considered for youth or adult populations on multiple daily injections. Now, to wrap it up, there are a couple other highlights, including that insulin pens are preferred in most cases, but always consider the person. 
We need to move away from the term smart pens and start saying connected insulin pens. And lastly, we need to ensure all people have the capability to utilize the technology safely, tailor the specific device based on multiple factors, and provide the extensive education on that technology. Yeah, I think Jennifer hit the nail on the head, Stuart, as with most everything we do for people with diabetes, the use of technology should really be individualized and decisions on use of technology should be driven by a need or desire to improve care or optimize convenience for the individual with diabetes. That said, while I love diabetes technology and the thought of being separated from my automated insulin delivery device uh, makes me frankly quite anxious, uh, some of the older adults I work with in the community really aren't interested in starting a CGM, for example. So I don't push beyond educating them about the devices and discussing the potential benefits of use and, and allow them to make the decision. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that diabetes technologies, including CGMs, insulin pumps, connected insulin pens, and even extending into the realm of, of apps are incredible tools, but I believe they should be used thoughtfully to address identified barriers in patient care. And as with everything, uh, you know, one, one size does not fit all. As ambulatory care practitioners, I think we can make a huge impact by providing patients with extensive education about the pros and cons of these technologies, as Jennifer nicely stated, and in doing so, help the patient determine the best options for them to improve their diabetes outcomes. Well, Josh, Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the iFormerX podcast today and, and providing us with your insights about the treatment of diabetes. I think there have been some significant changes in the treatment and management of diabetes over the past few years. And I'm afraid the pandemic has really slowed down the adoption and, and implementation of some of these recommendations. So I truly hope everyone will take a careful look at the commentary as well as download and review the ADA 2022 Standards of Medical Care and Diabetes. And if you're not sure where to find them, we provide a link to the ADA recommendations on our website. If you've made changes in your practice or your workflow based on these new standards, be sure to leave us a comment. We'd love to hear about what you're doing to take care of patients with diabetes. And, and by the way, this podcast and the written commentary will be part of the American Pharmacists Association Board Prep and Recertification Program for Ambulatory Care Pharmacists. So if you are a board certified pharmacist in ambulatory care, you can earn recertification and continuing education credit. Just click on that link that's posted below the commentary on our website to learn more. And finally, I'd like to say thank you to Jay Pitcock, one of my colleagues here at the University of Mississippi, for agreeing to serve as a peer reviewer, not once, not twice, but three times over the past few years. Jay provides care to patients with heart failure and, and keeps up to date on the primary literature and guidelines. So he's my go-to guy when I need someone to review a commentary related to heart failure. So thank you, Jay. And if you'd like to become a peer reviewer for iFormerX, just send me an email. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm -hmm.